All right, well, we are going to begin here. If, uh, if anyone is in need of a Bible, we do have uh, a few. We have a few pew Bibles in the seats in front of you if you need one. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. So if you need to use one of the pew Bibles here, you'll find that on page 820. So let's begin. Have you ever gone through one of those seasons or or times in your life where it just seems like one thing after another goes wrong and you just can't get ahead? You know, sometimes it's, it's the kinds of things that you can look back on now and just laugh at it. Uh, just chalk it all up to Murphy's Law, right? Anything that can go wrong will. Uh, like maybe one of those times when you're trying to not burn dinner and then one of your kids spills their glass of milk and then one of your other kids comes in and screams at you that there's a spider above her bed. But you know, sometimes these chaotic times, these storms of life uh, are not really a laughing matter. Sometimes they, they threaten to overwhelm us. Sometimes you're going through already a stressful, difficult life transition, and then in the middle of that, a, a precious, treasured friendship just falls apart. Or maybe on top of employment or financial difficulty, then a, a devastating health problem is, is thrown into the mix. And I know many here in this church have have experienced something like that. And and some of you are are even going through those kind of storms right now. And I think all of us, whether or not you're you're a believer, I think all of us have this innate desire, this kind of instinctive longing for God to show up in those moments, for for a divine, all-powerful creator to arrive and to turn things around and to save us. Because we all know this world can be full of chaos and we know that storms are inevitable. So if God was, was going to show up for you, what would you ask of him? What would you ask him to do? What would it take for him to rescue you? Well, this morning as we look at Matthew 14... Verses 22 through 36, it's the story of Jesus walking on the water. And uh, for those of you who who have been with us, last week Matthew Cunningham preached about the feeding of the 5,000. And in in that story, crowds of people came out to Jesus in the wilderness. And instead of handing out swords and arming them for battle, training them, he provided a banquet. He gave them bread, which represented life. But we know from John's gospel that the crowd wanted to to make Jesus king by force. And so even though Jesus was going to spark a revolution, it wasn't the revolution that the crowds had in mind. Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David, but he was going to Jerusalem not, not to sit on David's throne, but to wear the crown of thorns. And so Jesus knows it's time to exit the scene, to get his disciples away from those crowds quickly. And so we pick the narrative up here in Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. 
And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. Uh, let's pray as we begin. Father, we, we just pray you'd open up your word to us. You would open us to your word that we would receive uh, from you. Uh, life and grace and truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this story, the, the unique identity of Jesus Christ is on display. His power, his authority over the wind and waves. And the disciples are, are left with the conclusion that he is the son of God. And even though when they were on their own, left to themselves, the disciples were just struggling through the storm, not really being able to, to get the better of it. In his own perfect time, Jesus comes. He arrives to rescue them, to encourage them. So if I were to summarize this story in one sentence, and this is going to basically be our outline today, it would be this. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who rescues from the storm, so worship him. And any of the kids who were wanting to make marks for, for the key word, uh, you can make that for the word storm. And to say it one more time now, so that the main summary idea, Jesus is the sovereign Lord who rescues from the storm, so worship him. So let's begin with that, that first part, the first phrase, Jesus is the sovereign Lord. Really, if there's one thing that Matthew wants his readers wants us to learn from this story is that Jesus is the Son of God, sovereign over nature, the wind and the waves. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a wise religious leader. He is divine. He has power over every gust of wind, every wave, and he's sovereign over the circumstances of our own lives. What's crucial for us to see in this story is that, uh, as one commentator puts it, here, Jesus is both showing he is God and he is saying he is God. So look, look again at verses 25 and following. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. 
do not be afraid. So first, Jesus shows he is God as he walks on water. Now throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, no one has the power over the wind and the sea except Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. It was Yahweh who who parted the Red Sea for Israel in the Exodus as they left Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh's chariots behind, behind them. And it was the same Lord, Yahweh, who calmed the storm after the prophet Jonah was thrown overboard in a great storm. The Lord God is the one who created the sea and the land and everything in them. And he's even described in some passages as walking on the sea. So if you look at Psalm 77, 19, the psalmist says of him, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And Job also says of God in Job 9, 8, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So it's God alone who has the power to walk across the sea. So Jesus is showing here in this miraculous event that he is God. And by walking on the waves, Jesus is not merely demonstrating his authority over the natural elements. Because in, in scripture, the sea often is used to represent the forces of evil, the, the chaos in this world. The sea is, is dark and powerful. It's uncontrollable. It's deadly. So, If you remember in Genesis 1, there's darkness over the face of the deep waters until God speaks, and he speaks light and order and beauty into existence, and he reigns in and controls the chaos. And then in Revelation 21, to skip all the way to the end, when when John describes this new heaven and new earth, we're told the sea is no more. And so when Jesus walks on the water, and brings this calm to the chaos of the storm. It's a picture of his power and authority over evil and over chaos to put an end to their power over this broken world. So Jesus shows he is God and he says he is God. Now, now what do we mean by that? When Jesus calls to his disciples, he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, this is strikingly similar to the wording in Isaiah 43 that Michelle read to us earlier where God says to Israel, uh, fear not. And he talks about when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. He says, I am the Lord your God. Fear not, for I am with you. But even more striking are, are the words that Matthew records here. When Jesus says it is I, the Greek words that some of you here will will uh, recognize the Greek words are ego eimi, which, which would be literally just translated, I am. And in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that the people in Jesus' day would read, the, the Greek words are exactly the same uh, used in Exodus 3. Uh, this is the passage when Moses asks the Lord, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So again, in the, in the Greek 
Bible, uh, the, the translation of the Hebrew scriptures that, that people, even in Jesus' day, read these exact words, ego, a me, I am, the words that, that Jesus says here in Matthew 14. So as Jesus comes walking on the water, he calls to the disciples, essentially saying, don't fear, I am is here. He shows them he's God and he says he is God. Now, even as we, as we recognize, we see that Jesus is revealed as the Son of God, the, the, the sovereign I am, we also have to acknowledge that the storm here is, is designed to glorify the Son. Um, if, we, if we look back again at verse 24, it says, The boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. This, this whole situation here was not an accident. It was designed with a purpose. And, and namely, it was designed to reveal Jesus as the Son of God. He ordered the disciples to go on ahead of him, to go across the lake without him while he was praying on the mountain. And before long, they find themselves in the midst of this storm, not through their own foolishness, not through their own disobedience, but because they were obeying the express command of their master. And now it seems like Jesus is failing to show up, even though they're in danger in fear for their lives. So what does this mean for us? Well, if this was the experience of these disciples who lived and walked and ministered with Jesus, will it not also be true for us? Might Jesus lead us into a storm for our ultimate good and so that his glory might be revealed? Or do we embrace instead the the prosperity teaching that, that promises wealth and comfort and success for everyone if you only have enough faith? Do we expect that if we're walking in obedience, if we're involved in God's kingdom work, that we'll avoid storms altogether? No, this story and really the entire Bible teaches us otherwise. Make no mistake, Jesus knew the storm was coming and he sent his disciples right into it. But then we may ask, why? Why would he do this? It's, it's crucial, I think, just as a, as a theological category, that we, that we as believers don't interpret trials in kind of a knee-jerk reaction as a sign of God's displeasure or God's disfavor. These storms that enter our lives are not a result. They are never a result of God punishing our sin or pouring out his wrath. Because if we are in Christ, then all our punishment has been endured by Jesus on the cross. And if you just think of, of Job's friends in, the, in this, the book, the story of Job, they assume that his trials are a direct result of his sin. And yet in the end, God rebukes them and he affirms Job because behind the curtain... In, in this heavenly throne room, there was this cosmic display of God's glory that, that neither Job nor his friends had the faintest idea about. And so when you walk through a trial, when you walk through a storm, know that Jesus may be leading you through the valley in order to display himself to you and to others in an even more breathtaking and glorious way. 
The storm was the means Jesus used to reveal himself to his disciples. And this is not the only time this kind of thing happens in the Gospels. Uh, So in John chapter 9, there's a man born blind and the Jesus' disciples ask him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin? Was it because of the sin of his parents? And Jesus replies in John 9, 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. But Jesus is not denying that blindness or sickness or death are the result of sin because we live in a fallen world that lies under the curse of sin. So yes, blindness, disease, they're a result of sin because death and destruction and the curse entered this world because of sin. That's why there will be no more blindness or sickness in heaven because sin and death will be swallowed up. Amen. But Jesus is saying, this man was not born blind because of a specific sin of his or his parents. No, God is sovereign even over the effects of the curse. And this case of blindness was designed to display the works of God. As Jesus went on to demonstrate his power to open the eyes of the blind and to fulfill scripture. And even again, a couple chapters later in John 11, the famous story of Lazarus, when Jesus, hearing that his friend Lazarus is sick, he says, this illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then after Jesus stays away for two more days and Lazarus dies, he tells his disciples, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So even the death of Jesus' friend, Lazarus, was designed to glorify Jesus so that his disciples, including Lazarus' sisters, including Lazarus himself, might believe in him. And John writes that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters. But as as John Piper points out, what Jesus does in this story doesn't feel like love to most people. Because Lazarus really Died, And as far as he knew, as far as his sisters knew, Jesus failed to show up. Mary and Martha had to see their brother die. And yes, you know, we have the advantage of, of 2020 hindsight. We have the whole Bible. We know Jesus was going to, to raise Lazarus up again. And so in some sense, it could seem not, not quite such a big deal. But we can't dismiss the death of Lazarus is insignificant because it was a real death. Death is hard and it's terrible. And yet, Jesus does what he does so that his glory will be revealed and that his disciples will believe in him. And so the question in the end is, do we trust that a display of God's glory bringing about faith, causing us to believe in him is actually worth going through a storm, going through a painful experience? Can we still trust that he loves us even when the the loss seems unbearable? As Piper writes about this story, he says, what does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us 
what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? What will give you full and eternal joy? The answer of this text is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God, seeing and admiring and marveling at and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Until Lazarus was raised from the dead, it was hard for his family or the disciples or anyone to see how God would be glorified in that situation. And in much the same way, there are times when we're just going to be unable to see how God will be glorified from storms of illness or loss or disappointment or depression or even death. And there may be a season when all we can really do is trust him and keep on following even though we can't see it. But when our resurrection comes, when everything is made new, then we'll no longer see in a mirror dimly. We'll see face to face and we'll be able to understand. We'll be able to see what God was doing. And really more importantly, we'll be able to to see, we'll be able to understand who God is. I know many, many of you here have experienced significant trials. You know what that's like to keep trusting as you, as you walk through the valley. And sometimes the only thing that can carry us through the storm is firm confidence that God is in control. And if he could take the most terrible event in, in all human history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at the hands of sinful men, and use that to accomplish the greatest good imaginable, then surely he can use our trials also for good, whether or not we understand everything fully now. So Jesus, Jesus is the sovereign Lord. We can trust him in his sovereignty. But point two, he's the one who rescues from the storm. We've seen that that Jesus intentionally sent the disciples into the storm, but that's not the end of the story. He doesn't leave them there. He does come to their rescue, and nothing can hinder him. And and we note at the same time that, that Jesus, he does arrive on his own timeline. Um, it says in verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. And that means he, he didn't come until sometime between three and six in the morning, three and six a.m. Now they, they left, you know, they departed in the evening after Jesus was dismissing the crowds. Jesus went up on the mountain. So his intention was, was clearly not to just come to the rescue the moment the storm began. They were probably out there for over eight hours before he came. And so what, what we can take from this is, first of all, we should never doubt that Jesus will rescue us from every terror, every trial. He is our merciful Savior. He's promised that we'll never perish. No one will snatch us from his hand. But sometimes that final deliverance won't come as soon as we'd like. Sometimes it won't even come in this life. Just like Paul's thorn in the flesh, God may allow a long-term trial to demonstrate to us and to others that his grace is sufficient. 
that the trial may last to, to prove our faith is gold as we continue to trust even when the answer to our prayers is wait, wait. And, and sometimes the Lord will show up walking on the water with a spectacular rescue and display his power. But either way, all our hope, all our trust must be in him and, and to wait on him to calm the storm and to make things right. But second, as, as Jesus' disciples, even as we ultimately depend on him to accomplish the rescue, to make all things right, that doesn't mean that we just sit back and do nothing. Because Jesus is with us and his spirit is in us. He's the compassionate and merciful savior and we are to be imitators of him. We are to reach out in that same compassion and hope and service. And sometimes that means stepping outside our comfort zone, taking bold action by faith, trusting God will help us. So just as we see Peter calling out to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. Now, Peter is often criticized for his lack of faith in this story, right? Because he he begins to sink. But John MacArthur points out that we, we really ought to give him more credit just for having enough faith to leave the boat in the first place. MacArthur writes, who out of all the disciples jumped out of the boat? Peter. There's the Lord, he must have thought. I'm here. I've got to go where the action is. Love that. In many different ways, Jesus calls us also to step out in faith, to join him in his work. And sometimes that means calling us to do something hard, something inconvenient. It may even be when we're in the middle of our own storm. And what, what's with that? Why, why couldn't God just wait until everything is lined up perfectly, everything's going great, and then ask us to step out in faith? Well, it's really what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 1, when he speaks about the affliction that he experienced, he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then later on in in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, weak earthen vessels to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When God calls us to, to reach out, to step out, even when we feel inadequate, weak, overwhelmed, it only proves his power. He gets all the glory. It shows that we have something that the world doesn't understand. And that could look like helping out a brother or sister, bringing a meal, helping someone move, and, and I would just commend this church because uh, this is a, a, a wonderful community of, of love and service uh, with, within the body. Just pray that continues to, to define this congregation. It might mean stepping out of your comfort zone to talk about your faith, talk about Jesus with a coworker, with a fellow student, with a neighbor, even though you're afraid. It may look like getting involved 
uh, in reaching out in the community, being involved in things like the Compassion Connect Clinic that we've been able to host here on occasion. But Jesus calls us out of the, really the false sense of safety we have in our boat, in our little bubble, and he calls us to step out in faith so we can follow in his steps and share in his work. Now, you could be considering this story and thinking, well, is Peter really such a great example of faith? Because doesn't he just end up sinking in the waves? Doesn't he end up just having to cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me? And yes, that's right. And you know what? We are all just like Peter. Uh, The commentator Bruner writes, Peter is a symbol of believers. They, like he, are full of faith and unfaith, of feats and failures. Does this story teach disciples that they can believe and do great things? Or does it teach disciples that they cannot sustain faith by themselves and that sooner or later they too disbelieve and sink, thus needing no less than outsiders, the miraculous Savior? The answer seems to be that the story teaches both. So yes, Jesus calls us to have faith, to step out, to overcome our fears, and we need not be afraid that the storm will overwhelm us. Because when we fix our eyes on Jesus and walk by faith, he can empower us to do great things. And when we doubt, when we struggle, he's there to extend his hand, to pull us up. He is the Lord who who rescues from the storm. And so in conclusion, point three, so worship him. Worship him. Jesus, the divine son, Lord of creation, he's the rescuer, He is the savior who's worthy of our trust and all of our worship. Just look at verse 32. It says, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now this is highly significant. It's the first time in Matthew's gospel that the disciples have used this title, son of God, for Jesus. The father called Jesus his beloved son in Matthew 3.17. The demons called him the son of God in 8.29. They know, they know what's going on. But now, after Jesus has shown he is God, he's said that he is God, the disciples worship him as the son of God. Now, these are monotheistic Jews. They are worshipers of the one true God. So for these disciples to worship anyone other than God would be idolatry. So it's astounding that they would declare this man to be the son of God and worship him. And really that's why the the liberal theologians, the liberal uh, teachers who would try to argue, well, Jesus was just walking in some shallow water close to the shore. Those attempts to deny the miraculous, they completely fall flat. Something truly miraculous and earth-shattering had to have happened for these disciples to take such a radical step, a miracle, something that could not be explained away. And so the only reasonable response is worship. And then what happens right after this? 
Jesus and the disciples land at the other side of the lake at Gennesaret. And it says, the men of that place recognized him. They sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Just look at the, the faith, the unqualified faith of these people. They recognize Jesus. And so they send word to really the entire region, the surrounding areas. They bring all of the sick to Jesus. And they implore, they plead with him, just allow them to touch the fringe of his garment. It's a prayer of faith. It, it, just, it seems that they, they believe Jesus could do anything. And he heals them. And so the question is, do you recognize, just like these, these people, do you recognize Jesus this morning? Do you recognize who he is? Do you put your faith in him and trust that he's able to do anything? You know, I asked at the beginning, if God was to show up, what would you ask of him? If he was here, what would it take for him to rescue you from the storm's of your life. Well, friend, God has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave up everything. He did all that was necessary to accomplish the rescue we need. Only Jesus, as the Son of God, is able to deliver us from the greatest storm of all. Because in our sin, our rebellion, as we, as, we, uh, as we saw in the catechism question earlier, each and every one of us deserves the wrath and judgment of a holy God. No amount of effort to, to row ourselves back to safety will make any difference for we're no match for this storm. But Jesus gave himself up to the storm of God's wrath. He took the full fury, the full weight upon himself He was crushed in our place under the weight of divine judgment. On the cross, Jesus died the death that each of us deserves. He took our place, though he was without sin. And so now we can have the life, the eternal life that belongs to him, the life he always intended for his creation, a life of peace, a life of safety, Because Jesus rose from the dead after three days, sitting down at the right hand of God, proving that he had conquered sin and death, that his sacrifice was accepted as payment for our salvation. And he offers peace and forgiveness and reconciliation with God to everyone who would repent of their sin and cry out, just like Peter, Lord, save me. Jesus offers shelter from the storm of judgment that we deserve. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel that we as Christians treasure and proclaim and live by. And if you're here today and you've never embraced this gospel before, even if, even if other people think you have, but as you, as you look at your, your own heart and your own life, you realize you've not truly given your full trust, your full reliance on Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to talk to me, talk to one of the elders here about what it would mean to put your faith in Christ, to begin to follow him. And for the rest of us, for those of you who are believers, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.
the Savior who uses even the storms of life for our eternal good, the one who will finally rescue us from our trials, bring us safely into his kingdom. Let's worship him, Christ alone, cornerstone, because through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do just proclaim that Jesus is worthy of worship. He is worthy of our all because of what he has done for us. We have salvation. We have life. We thank you. Thank you for his mercy, his compassion that he was swallowed up in the storm of judgment so that we could be pulled out to safety. We pray that we would go from this place with faith in Jesus, our rock and our salvation, and that we would follow him in lives of compassion, love, sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.